You're listening to the Common Grace Podcast, stories of common grace and common people for the common good. Today on Common Grace, we're talking about the future church. Join us in our conversation with Peter Sung as we talk about the impacts of both the pandemic and post-Christian culture on the church today. The church is currently experiencing a major moment of change, and many of these changes Christians may want to ignore. So join us as Peter talks about community, a sense of belonging, and what the future of the church might look like. I'd like to welcome Peter Sung to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. And I thought we can just get started with a bit of your journey. Maybe you can give us a snapshot of your journey and what what that's been like and led you to like this point in your leadership. Yeah, I was thinking about that. I think there are probably four things worth mentioning that contributed the most to the perspective I'm maintaining today. And the first is that I'm not white, I'm Asian, and I'm not one singular Asian. I took a DNA test several years ago, and I came up part Korean, part Japanese, part Chinese, and then a bunch of other little things. And so um, that's me bodily speaking. Culturally, I think I'm more Korean than anything else. So that's one piece of it. I think another piece is that I'm an immigrant. So I have that sort of third culture kid reality going on in my uh, brain. And I would say that I don't feel home with any cultural group. And that's been a sort of a personal journey of mine to figure out where my home is. And I'm okay where I'm at now because I'm used to it, but there are moments when I see somebody just kind of breathe deeply into a space. And I recognize at that moment that I don't often experience that sigh. And so I think there's some part of me that's longing for that. I don't think it's been unredeemed or unused, but I think that's something that I've had to live with. Uh, Another thing is that I have been a Christian. I was born into a Christian home. Not only that, but I've always actively been a Christian. I remember being a little kid and reading the book of Job and wondering who and or what Leviathan was and trying to connect the dots between dinosaurs and dragons and biblical creatures and God and man and just always curious, always hungry and looking beyond the thing that was in front of me and trying to understand other realms or layers to reality. I think that's a piece of it. And then the other piece, the final piece, is that I'm a guy and I've experienced life from that perspective in some ways more acutely than maybe a typical male because I'm the only son in an Asian family where the law of primogeniture is at work. And so there was sort of an unfair, undue focus on the male heir, if I can put it that way. I have three sisters. And so I have maybe all of the issues of an eldest child, but because I was second born, all the issues of a middle child, and because I was the only boy, all the issues of a youngest, and also all the issues of an only child. So a lot of issues that have been forces in my life, but I think all of it in some ways has been used to kind of bring me to this place. You know, I'd love to talk about the post-Christian church, the post-COVID church. You are currently doing a lot of work and leadership. You're writing a book in this area. And I just think a lot of people within the church, even people from outside the church looking in, are asking, what's going on? So maybe we could just start there. Peter, help us understand what's going on. Um, 
I don't know that I can help anybody understand what is going on. This is my shot at what I think might be contributing to what we're all experiencing. I like subjectively believe that I have an insight to bring to this question. I was meeting with, I can say this because we just uh, hands shook on it today, but I, with my editor for the book, and she was communicating that, you know, the, the book is codenamed the post-church church, but she was suggesting that maybe we call it the post-power church. And I don't think I've put myself in the camp of somebody who thinks everything is about power. I know there are uh, some schools of thought that like to look at everything through that lens. I have not historically been that person, but as I have double-clicked on life in the United States since at least 2016, I don't think I can escape talking about power and the role that it's playing in what we're all experiencing today. Yeah, I mean, the lens of power might not be the only thing to look at, you know, cultural convulsions and rhythms, but it certainly is a extremely important lens to understand. So let's let's step into that. Like there's been cultural convulsions, there's shifts in power dynamics going on culturally. Maybe just share what you've been studying and some of the, maybe some of the key themes that are really rising to the surface for you. What I discovered as I looked into it, this is anecdotal as well as research-based. I realized that there was a shift that really started happening years in the making. I immigrated to the United States in 1981. And back then I truly was a minority. And uh, but in 2019, we crossed a really significant threshold is what I discovered. I discovered that in the year 2019, 50.5% of all of the human beings in the United States of America that were age 16 and under were non-white. And that was in 2019. So this is three years later, these same 16-year-olds are 19, 20 years old now. And so I think that phenomenon required a requisite power uh, redistribution in the country. And uh, as you uh, probably know, George, America is a country that really um, idealizes and platforms youth rather than the elderly. Whereas in somewhere like Korea or Japan, they may, I mean, they love young kids too, young voices too, but it's there's there's much more honor given to the elderly, but not so in the United States. We have a marginalizing reaction to older people. So when that threshold was crossed, 50 point, I, I actually, I, th I think the accurate statistic is 50.05% of the country, 16 and younger, were constituted by non-whites. And when that happened, there was a redistribution of power and coupled with the moderating or catalyzing effects of technology I think the power shift was really beginning to be felt in the country earlier before 2019, but definitely literally in 2019. And I think the, the reason Trump came into power, the reason he was supported was really not because he was claiming to be Christian and saying things like two Corinthians or whatever he was saying, but there was a sort of the, I think the white person, the white male felt cornered at some point began to feel the um, sort of the dissipating power in the country. And Donald Trump represented a culminating moment when they can finally sort of act, react to these emotions that they felt. And they threw their support behind the guy that they perceived 
as somebody who was going to give them their power back. I don't think at that time too many people were articulating it that way, but I do think that was what was happening on an emotional level and emotion what's happening on an emotional level is primary compared to either the facts or the narrative that we tell ourselves. So there's this power shift that's happening. There's a there's emotional responses that you see if you're looking at the culture. If you look at the church and you see there's trends that are happening at increasingly more rapid pace, how would you describe the cascading effect of that power shift and the impact of that cascading effect in the church? Because there seems to be a lot of people going through what may be called deconstruction, a reframing of faith, a walking away, a reevaluating. How would you describe what some of what we've been seeing the last few years? Yeah, I think you're asking a content question, but if I could address the process first, sure. I think that process-wise, this is what I've been calling the five functions of the pandemic. What did the pandemic do? And when I say pandemic, I don't just mean COVID-19. I do mean the redistribution of power that resulted from the minority becoming the majority in this country. I think that uh, the pandemic had a first a revealing effect. And so it's not that it created new things, but it revealed what was always there but we had the luxury of avoiding it or being willfully blind to it or ignoring it. And sometimes because we were focused on other things, we literally didn't see it, but the pandemic took away those luxuries and we had to kind of be confronted with what had always been there. So the pandemic had a revealing effect. Secondly, it had an accelerating effect. And so things that were headed in a certain direction kept heading in that direction just faster. And so in the church, let's say uh, ministry was weak. Well, it probably died. If you weren't already networked well, you probably had a hard time staying in touch with people. If your um, the way you managed finances was more physical, like checks and cash and offering plate based, then probably you took a hit, at least initially, and you scrambled to get digital. And so these were things that kind of accelerated and some good things too. Like if you're already technologically savvy, like LiveChurch.tv, for example, uh, they actually grew initially. Actually, a lot of churches responded by saying they grew, but that didn't last uh, more than a month or two. Uh, any case, so these are the first two effects of the pandemic. And then it also had a flattening effect where the centralized, place-oriented, pastor-centered uh, modality of the church was severely um, handicapped. Uh, and, and so it caused the pastor to lose their functioning initially, and they didn't know what to do with themselves. They didn't know how to operate when they weren't in the spotlight. And suddenly leaders from all over the place were needed to stay connected to people, to run smaller groups, to try to do missional things if you needed to do, do that. And so I think that was uh, another effect. And so these are some of the processes of the five functions of the pandemic. All of that worked together to cause the church to, I think, be debunked and to be de-bloated and for it to uh, experience a kind of reckoning as an organization and as a religion. And we began to see that not everybody that went to church in America were actually followers of the way. You know, They weren't living a cruciform life. They weren't non-consumeristic. They were individualistic rather than collectivistic. They were consumeristic 
rather than commitment oriented. And so there was a lot of things that were wrong about the church and a lot of the, a lot of false gospels we were living our lives by that were revealed and accelerated and all that. So I think that's kind of what happened to the church. And then getting back to power, we really saw that what white American Christians for the most part wanted was power, was domination, uh, was supremacy. And religion was just a way to sort of, uh, as a container to hold that power, an identity that really was masking a truer identity, which is built around power and domination in the country. For Christians on that in particular, in that particular paradigm of power uh, as a power dynamic, what is something you're hoping that shift creates from that type of a power dynamic? What would you love to see? What I would love to see, I'm not sure if that's the question versus what I think is required in order for the church to find true north again, get reoriented from this disorientation. Sure. And a new identity uh, for the church to emerge. I sort of have a list of four things so I can share those. I think, first of all, uh, the church needs to get essential again in their theology and what in their understanding of the gospel. I think they've fall in prey to the Dunning-Kruger effect, which is this belief that if you're an expert in one area and you're praised for it, then you believe mistakenly that you're you're an expert in lots of areas or all areas. <laughs> for example, with movie stars who have an opinion about too many things they shouldn't have an opinion on, and people still care because they are starstruck, basically. And I think the church was kind of starstruck by themselves and they sort of dabbled in too many things. For example, I was thinking about this example I was going to share with the podcast today. I remember attending a church and the pastor talked about how we are not active enough, proactive enough in our life. Pastor has spent all Saturday night hours cutting circles out of cardboard paper. And then he spent time handwriting the words to it, to it, to it. T-O-I-T, T-O-I-T, all around the circumference of these cardboard uh, circles. And he made enough for every person in the church to get one. And he said, so many times we think to ourselves, well, I couldn't do it because I didn't get around to it. And he says, now, today, you got around to it. And so you have no excuse but to be more proactive in your life and get stuff done. Now, Maybe that's a helpful tool. Maybe there's truth there. But that's not the job of the church. There's no gospel there. And there could be if he connected it to the gospel, but he didn't do that. Jesus didn't die, I don't think, so that I can get a physical round to it and get more stuff done. So that's just one silly example. I remember hearing another sermon about bike helmets. The preacher talked about how kids need to wear bike helmets. And it was bike helmet day on that Sunday, and they handed out bike helmets from the city council. I mean, these are not in and of themselves bad or good things. They are, though, not the job of the church. These things are not the things that the church should be dabbling in. And so I think the first thing is for the church to get more essential in their theology and their content, in the way they approach their role in society, in their role in people's lives. They should really shut up about most things. They should not be so reactive and insecure and just be uh, embodiments and um, containers for 
whatever the church defines as the gospel. And I can tell you, it's not by Kelmet and it's not round to it. That's more good advice rather than good news. Yeah, that's the much better succinct way to say it. Yeah, I think the second category I would mention is the importance of the church becoming relational again. I think there is a shift from place and programs to people and practice. I think that we stopped seeing people. We stopped attuning with people. We stopped seeing the humanity in people. We began to focus on theology. We began to focus on principles and issues and stances, ways to self-help people. And we really kind of have strayed far from the relationality that's required to truly be helpful to people, to be salt and light in people's lives, and to help people to feel safe enough to walk towards holiness. I think we have lost our way there in a big way. And so I think the call is for the church to stop trying to get big and to just get more messy and real and relational, connectional with people. The third thing is for the church to become a little bit more humble. And this is, this is pretty self-evident in all of the things that's been happening in our culture, but there's been a challenge to power. Um, there's a way that technology has allowed what Harvard Business Review calls new power to challenge and in many cases topple old power. Hmm. Old power is like currency. It's something that just a few people hold. It's kind of a zero-sum game, limited scarcity view of power. New power, though, is like a current, and these are small streams. When they come together, they can surge, and technology has allowed little streams to surge you know, in ways that defeats old power, and we saw this in Me Too. We saw this. We see this now with uh, between minorities and, and white power, uh, but we see this even against governments. I mean, governments, I mean, Joe Biden was tweeting at somebody this week. It's like, you can tweet at the president, and he might tweet back. You can tweet at Elon Musk. They might tweet back because now it's it's new power versus old power. And that's a reality. But uh, as far as the church is concerned, I think that since 2016, I'm aware that there's been a, a surge in interest in a more, a more humble way of exercising power, even in the corporate world and in the corporate definitions of what's effective leadership have been shifting. And I think the church is following suit. We've seen a lot of people get corrupted by power. We've seen a lot of people get surprised by their corruption because power has a blinding effect. Mm. And so um, I think, especially with the flattening effect of the pandemic and what technology allows us to do. Uh, we no longer are dependent on the one person in the village who knows how to read or understands theology or has a Bible. But it's really uh, leaning more into a flatter, more New Testament ideal for how, how power works. Jesus says, this is what the Gentiles do, but not so among you. And I think we have an opportunity here. And I think uh, it's required of us, the culture is demanding it of us, to lean more into that not so among you idea and lead as servants and lead from a more humble posture. Peter, could you just expound on that a little bit more? That seems really powerful to me that you said uh, power can, can cause a real blindness and maybe talk about that. Like what examples and then how does humility interact with that? Yeah, I'm sure there are people who study power and know more about this. I think what we see, at least in the in the stories with these powerful church leaders, just in the last ten years, it seems like just there the list of leaders falling that we thought would never fall. It's really long. 
I mean, names like Ravi Zacharias or Bill Hybels, just to name a couple. And in our in our local area here, we have Mark Driscoll and others. We really see uh, these leaders who were holding a lot of power, exercising a lot of power. And this power, as you know, Jared Tolkien would say, it has this effect of impairing judgment. And we no longer see soberly what's really going on and the ways that we are being corrupted by power. And so it's got a kind of intoxicating effect. Mm. So um, as these leaders get intoxicated, uh, they abuse power until they get called on it. And again, it's new power and technology that's allowing these leaders to be caught probably sooner rather than later. If we had technology a hundred years ago, we probably would have no Christian leaders that we look up to. Uh, <laughs> Ooh, yeah. I'm not sure if that's what you were asking. Yeah, yeah, that's really, you know, like what are those effects of, of power blindness? I just think that's really important. The other thing in conversations I've had with you and when I've listened to you before, when you talk about power, it might be helpful for the listeners to, to know a little bit about the uh, kind of the relational dynamic that you come from when, you, when you're when you talking about power, you think in terms of systems and relationships often. Would you maybe talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think that when leaders are put into positions and you suddenly have positional power, depending on the kind of cultural context you're in, you might be in a more high power distance culture where positional authority is immediately respected. And what that just means is that people in a high power distance culture see positional power as more legitimate, the higher that position is. And so if your boss is in the room, their preferences, take precedence over your own because they have greater positional power. So you respond to that power differential. And I think what happens is leaders forget the experience of power from underneath. Mm. And so when a boss tells a joke, it's different than when a follower tells a joke. And so there's an increase in vulnerability that the followers experience with regard to their positional authority that's over them. And I think it's very easy for leaders to forget that the experience of their power, their positional power and their authority is very different for the people underneath them. And they think that they're just, you know, being themselves or they think they are just one of the people in the room. They, they forget there's a power differential, but the way that that power or their presence or their words or their decisions are experienced is very different by followers. And, and that gap continues to increase because there's uh, something called social information processing theory that explains this. It says that because of the pack animal that human beings are, the way we process information isn't as raw data, but we process data through the eyes, through the reality, through the lens of the leader. And so we have an orientation towards the leader to help us understand what's happening. So for example, if a toddler falls down and hurts their knee, before they respond to the data, which is the pain, they look at their mom first. And if the mom is laughing and says, oh, honey, it's okay, then the child regulates themselves and processes that pain, that data differently than if the mom was panicking and getting ready to rush the child to the hospital, then the child begins to panic at a much higher level because they're processing the data in reality through the lens of their leader. Mm. And that's that social information processing theory that we, we process information socially 
And it's primarily through the designated leader in the space. And so uh, I think that happens in churches. That happens, you know, of course it happens. That's why I felt the pressure to have to say something in 2016, because there was an orientation towards me as a leader of that organization. And they wanted to know, now what? Tell us how to understand, how to calibrate the raw data that we've been getting all week. Mm. And looking through that social lens at power, which I just think, I haven't heard too many people talk from that perspective about power. How does the social aspect of humility help with the gap, the distortion, the illusion perhaps that power can, can create in those, in those uh, dynamics? Yeah, I feel like I can speak a little bit more authoritatively on this because I conducted my own research on this topic. What I learned was that when the leader, the primary leader is humble and the word humble leadership, it's not just my definition, but there is a uh, accepted definition in the field and it's comprised. The definition is a description of a humble leader, which is they admit their own mistakes. They admit their own limitations. They acknowledge the successes of their followers and they're open to new ideas. So there are these four things, at least these four things that describe a humble leader. And when a leader is humble, it immediately creates a kind of psychological safety amongst the followers. If you understand psychological safety, it's basically saying that you have a sense of safety that allows you to access your full brain instead of just the reactive parts of the brain. Mm. When you don't feel psychologically safe, you're mostly living out of or experiencing reality through your amygdala, which is your fight, flight, flock, or freeze response. The amygdala is good because it helps us survive in emergency situations. But what if there isn't an emergency? You just feel unsafe. And then you don't have access to your prefrontal cortex where all this imagining and thinking and executive functioning happens. And so when a leader is safe, it leads to psychological safety. And when that psychological safety is moderated by a team of followers who practice knowledge sharing, that's sharing their area of expertise with others and being open to other people's areas of expertise for yourself, when that knowledge sharing is happening, it leads to something called creativity which is the recombination of existing ideas. And so it's just this phenomenon that happens when a leader is humble. And Jesus talked about humility and described himself as a humble leader. And when other people around him assumed sort of this power-oriented definition of leadership, Jesus was quick to point out that actually humble leadership or servant leadership or in others' orientation is really what's most effective and what's most aligned with kingdom values and God's vision for humanity, what human flourishing looks like happens under humble leadership. And that's why Jesus is the first among many brethren. And so I think um, I know from experience that without psychological safety, I'm no good. I know that I have to feel safe even now as I'm talking with you. So I appreciate you being a generous and smiling person, George, because it helps me to have access to my full brain, you know? One of the things I'm resonating with and sparking in me is just the collective safety under humble leadership raises the brain power. It raises the creativity collectively. Everyone's thinking better and they're thinking better together, uh, less fearfully. It's just... A lot of things sparked. That was really, really good, Peter. Thank you for sharing that. 
Yeah, that really is the uh, vision that the body and the head are working together and, and more fully activated, not less. Mm. So Peter, you were kind of walking us through some, some steps. I think you're moving towards uh, the fourth. Keep going. This is great. Yeah. So uh, the third is the humble leadership idea. And then fourth is what I'm calling supernatural or mystical. And this is me theorizing, but also I have a lot of evidence in science and in life to back this up. I do think based on the second law of thermodynamics that everything in life tends towards chaos and decay and ultimately death. Unless that natural tendency is mitigated and then hopefully reversed by an outside of the system energy source. One example, primary example is the earth to the sun. The earth would immediately start to decay and disintegrate and it would just move towards thermal death without the mitigating and reversing effects of an outside of the earth energy source, which is the sun. And so if the sun disappeared right now, eight minutes later, we would start dying. That's how that works. And I find this to be true with plumbing in my house. And George, you know this really well. You're living through a plumbing issue right now. Mm -hmm. uh, this is true in relationships. This is true of churches. This is true of churches' mission statements. This is true of leaders and their effectiveness. This is true of followers and their followership. This is true on every level of my existence, from a molecular level to an existential level, I die by default, unless there is an outside of the system intervention that happens. And because of that fact of life, I do think that the church cannot experience renewal or revival or even any kind of redemption or opportunity without an outside of the system intervention. I mean, how can it be that it would happen for the church if it doesn't happen anywhere in all of reality? I remember an Old Testament professor of mine, I was learning about the history of renewal in the world, in the faith. And he talked about this, that there is a life, birth, life, death cycle that everything is, everything succumbs to. And a revival by definition is an intervention by the supernatural to turn the clock back. And so revival or intervention turns the clock back, but it starts dying again right away. It's not like it's suddenly going to live forever. But I think there is a way that God in his intervention is bringing the church into orbit a little bit at a time where we're not going to be falling to the earth anymore, but we'll be able to orbit because we reach a certain altitude. But until that shining moment, I do think we're going to need constant intervention to keep us from crashing and experiencing our own demise. And so as I think about the state of the church, where it's been and what's been revealed and what's been accelerated, I think that the only thing that's going to allow us to truly experience a new day as followers of Christ is going to be something supernatural by definition. Mm. Is that how you'd even define what grace is? Yeah, there's a lot of ideas like that. I think grace is definitely that. I think even mercy is that when something should happen. I think salvation is that by definition. It's heading in one direction and salvation means that you are saved from that direction. So again, it's an outside of the system. It's an interruption of the natural course of events. Oh, that's so good. This is so great, Peter. That's kind of it. I got those four ideas 
And uh, I don't know that we can get there right away. I think we are in the midst of a paradigm shift and paradigm shifts happen over the course of time and it happens in phases. I'm not totally sure what phase of the paradigm shift we're in. I do think that the Kuhn cycle helps us to understand a little bit where we might be. My guess would be that we haven't chosen the model yet. I think we are forced in a way to abandon the old model because there's a huge decline in the church. I didn't mention this statistic, but from the year 2000 to the year 2020, just before the pandemic, the church attendance in America has declined by more than half. We went from 137 median attendance on Sundays to 65 before the pandemic. And then the statistic and the data that comes after the pandemic is far worse. It's uh, 91% of churches have been decimated. And so uh, we're talking about an acceleration that we none of us imagined. We've been declining since the 70s, but this is unprecedented. And so this is evidence enough for me that the old paradigm is dying. And we are testing out some new models. I do think whatever models, model or two emerge, it's going to embrace these ideas of being essential rather than dabbling in too many things. It's going to be more relational rather than programmatic, people-oriented. I do think the leadership and the way we understand the church itself and its role in the church in the country is going to be more humble. And I think there's going to be an openness to divine intervention because we're going to see that without that, the church just isn't going to successfully jump what Harvard Business Review calls the S-curve and be able to get onto the next bell curve of life. So these are signs of a paradigm shift. You'd mentioned Kuhn paradigm understanding. What is that? Kuhn was a scientist who laid out how change happens in the scientific community. A paradigm is basically a set of answers to questions we have that allows us to live within a certain model or reality. And so if I have questions about God, the church in its old model had answers about God. If you live in any paradigm long enough, or if you live in the answers long enough, you begin to have new questions emerge because you're just living deeper lives within that paradigm. And the paradigm wasn't designed initially to answer all the questions that come 10, 20, 30 years later. And so that's when there's a kind of model drift that happens. And then in that drift, you begin to search out answers in earnest, and then you begin to find some. But paradigms don't shift all willy-nilly just because I feel this uncomfortable, but we need the force of culture to truly experience paradigm shifts. And I think we're at a cultural moment because we had a shared experience through Trump and through the pandemic. A great example of this is marriage. You know, you have all these answers about who this person is and what marriage is and who you are. And then you enter that paradigm and you live with those answers for a while. And then you need a paradigm shift or you're not going to make it in that relationship, right? And then you have the death of the honeymoon period and the emergence of a new model or the next 10 years of life or whatever. And then you have kids and then now you need new answers because you got new questions. And so you have another paradigm shift. And then the kids get older, you need a new paradigm. The kids leave the house, you need a new paradigm. Esther Perel says that any successful marriage has within it two or three explosions or paradigm shifts. And I think that uh, the church isn't exempt from that uh, reality. And so going through 
this power shift that you've mentioned the and this uh, revealing and acceleration through the pandemic and all these cultural convulsions there there's there's connection but it's but some of the cumulative effect if i'm hearing you right is is that there's a life death resurrection a shifting happening in uh paradigms in organizations in different sectors but especially the church i know that you're come from a, a church background so what does that what does that mean for people who go to church and they as they're coming back from the pandemic however they're interacting with church you know things are different things aren't the same and there's a lot of different ways to react to that what what do you think this means and what do you hope that it can mean for the church i'm really comforted by the fact that marriage is not something that i do but it's bigger than me it's something that is done to me. It's something that I enter into and I experience it. I'm basically unconscious on the operating table and marriage has its way with me. And that's the gift of the marriage, the sanctifying process, that I'm a, made a better person against my own will through marriage. And I think there's something like that about the church. The church is not something that we do. As much as American Christian warrior would like you to believe that they do the church, they construct the church. The church belongs to God. It is his beloved, and it's a gift to me. And so I take great comfort in knowing that I'm going to wake up and tomorrow there's going to be something bigger than me that I get to enter into. And I think God's going to be faithful to me. It's not because I'm faithful to God or to the church, but God's going to be faithful to me. And I get to receive the gift of participating, partaking in the church and constituting the church. And so that's a great comfort to me. Another thing that's really comforting to me, George, is you've mentioned this pattern of life, death, and resurrection. And that's really comforting because that is the pattern of the universe. The entire universe, large and small, exists because of this pattern. For example, the reason you exist and I exist is because some star died many, many, many moons ago. And it's spread its molecules throughout the universe. And some of those molecules landed on planet Earth and created planet Earth. And that's why you and I exist. We are made of stardust. And then one day I'm going to die and I'm going to be redistributed. And my death is going to feed some other living thing that's getting started as I'm ending. And that's how I really see um, what's happening here. I, the metaphor that I use in the book is that of a post-fire church. I think there's been a, a kind of fire that's swept across the landscape of the American church scene. And out of the clearing, that is, out of the resources that are being returned to the earth, out of the sun that's not sunlight that's not being made available because all these tall, large structures have been felled and burned. I think because of this phenomenon that we're seeing, we're going to see, should God send rain at just the right time, I think we're going to see what's called a super bloom, a phenomenon where you see this explosion of foliage and flowers that happen after a fire. Just when you think that the forest has been destroyed, you realize there's a difference between being strong and being resilient. And the church, by God's grace and God's spirit, is resilient. And there is going to be a super bloom. And you and I are going to be able to enjoy this great gift from God. But it's not because I'm doing something right or I'm strong or because I got it right. You know, it's it's because the church is bigger than me and God's vision for us is bigger than what we're able to create or destroy. So there's a tomorrow. I believe it. That's so good. With an average person 
who's considering going to church, maybe they're spiritually curious or they've been coming back to church and they're just wondering, you know, how can we rebuild something beautiful? How can we move forward through all the craziness of this world? What would you hope maybe the message in your book as a leader in the Evangelical Covenant Church, what's your hope that people would take away from the book and from your leadership? I would like people to walk away feeling hope after interacting with some of these ideas. Um, I think the goal of this book is to help people to feel small and significant at the same time. I want them to feel like they're part of something that's moving and growing and organic. It's, it's made to adapt. It's made to weather and actually get stronger through these seasons of life. I hope they feel that. And they take sort of a long view of patience towards their day-to-day experience. I think that if they want to be more enga- actively participating in the process, I think asking questions like, what do I believe to be the gospel? What are the functional sort of gods in my life that I rely on? Is it consumerism? Have I taken my idea of personal freedom beyond what is truly free? Have I made myself free at the imprisonment of others? I mean, there's, there are ways to sort of engage the question, what is the gospel? And kind of being confronted by that, I think that can be transformative. Another one is just asking what is more humble, you know, and doing the humble thing. I think that can be really interesting. I think asking what is more relational rather than program-oriented or principle-based. So, you know, there's lots of divisive issues in our culture, but behind those issues, behind the divide, actually there is a person. And if I connect with that person, what happens? If I get humble and if I get relational and if I get essential, what happens? And if I trust God to be supernatural, what happens in that relationship? How can I not shine my light, but let my light shine? Is there really a light in me? Am I really the light? That's what Jesus said. He didn't say I'm the light in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, you are the light of the world. And so am I the light and how do I let this light shine? And so I think these four principles can be really helpful sort of guidance for us as we think about being an embodiment of the church individually. And then if you're going to be relational, that collect the collective piece happens naturally, but you can create, you know, smaller communities to help discern and practice these four things as well. And from there, I'm not sure where it goes. I, I, I'm scared of equating or conflating faith in Christ with the 501c3 or with the hard wooden frame of a church structure, physical or metaphorical. That's a little bit of a um, you know, ring of power. You touch that thing and you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what conflicts of interest emerge and you don't know how the industrial complex begins to overtake. Actually, uh, one thing I forgot to mention, George, is that another piece of research I did, I'm not sure, I didn't include it in the book, but I came upon this research, this group that studied group sizes across human history. And what they learned was that the three sizes that emerged the most and seem to be the most resilient across history, human history, are the numbers 50, 150, and 500. And the idea is that 50 is the, uh, around 50 is a threshold uh, where people feel like it's a group. There's a group identity. Under 50, you don't, you just feel like, you know, whatever, something unofficial. But at 50, you're a group. 
there's a tribal identity that emerges. And then the limits, the upper limit of that is 150. It's famously known as the Dunbar number uh, from John Dunbar, who theorized that at around 150 is a limit uh, within which people feel like they know everybody else. And so there's high ownership, it's organic, and there's an automatic kind of policing of human behavior so that there's a quality control, immune function that happens naturally in the in the body. So 50 to 150 is sort of this group. I think that's kind of magical. And then from 150, the next number is 500. What happens from between 150 and 500 is there's an undue allocation of resources towards maintaining just the group. You know, so the building, the bills, the food, the program, the program directors, like staff, like insurance, pension, you know, all this. But at 500, some of those resources return back to the members of that group. And so there's an optimal benefit to cost ratio that happens at 500. And then beyond 500, it becomes anonymous and you you lose some of the key desired benefits of being part of a group. So um, I'm happy to see churches that are 50 to 150. I think there's sort of an ideal sort of like the good old days are usually when the group is between 50 and 150, the years that you look back on as a church. And you really feel like you're having fun and it's powerful and you're a resource to others when you're around 500. I think between 150 and 500, that's a program-oriented existence. And I think that feels a little bit like no man's land for everybody. And then beyond 500, I think you're just part of a machine that stops seeing human beings. So that's what I think will kind of emerge because the studies show, the research shows that these are the resilient numbers. And so I think these numbers are going to prove themselves to be resilient again. Oh, wow. And Peter, you, in your book, you have this fantastic helpful but just really powerful metaphor of wildfire and a super bloom could you just talk about that yeah i did some traveling this summer and i got to drive through two different areas one in california and one in oregon where i saw the aftermath of a wildfire that swept across you know hundreds of acres and i drove for miles in this one area near crater lake in oregon for example where all I saw was devastation in ecology that no longer exists. And it was a little bit heartbreaking, but it reminded me that a wildfire is not the end of the story. Nature has a cycle, and that cycle includes devastation, includes fires that happen a lot of times by natural causes. And so what happens in a forest or an ecosystem is that as as the ecosystem ages, there's a kind of like suboptimal way that they persist over a long period of time. That includes a lot of dead and dying and diseased trees that cover up the sun from smaller foliage, getting those resources. There's a way they hog up the resources from the soil and they're taking up physical space. But when a wildfire happens, suddenly all of these resources are returned back to the earth. Suddenly, there's a clearing where sunlight is hitting every square inch of the ecosystem. Suddenly, there are certain trees whose seeds are sealed in structures that are only released through fire, if you can believe that. I mean, they have evolved to need fires. That phenomenon is called serotony. But just when you think the forest is dead, when the timing is right and there's a sudden fall of rain that combines with all of the newly released resources that are made available through the fire, sometimes there's this beautiful 
just mind-bending phenomenon that they call super bloom, when almost seemingly overnight, there is an explosion of foliage and flowers. And so you can go to bed that night thinking the forest is dead. And the next morning you wake up wet from the rain, but you begin to see signs of life in ways that you never imagined. And you realize that there's a kind of resilience to the forest. And it's different than being strong. Like the pyramids are strong, but they're not coming back. Forests have been destroyed again and again and again, but they keep reemerging because there's a resilience to nature. And this is part of the natural and normal way that life persists on earth. And I think the church is going to experience a similar phenomenon because we're not inorganic like the pyramids. We're actually quite alive. As, as a living organism, uh, we're made to adapt and we're made to flourish through challenge. Mm. And how do you think the post-COVID, post-Christian church relates to that image that you just gave us? Probably they don't want to relate to it. I don't think that discipline is pleasant, as the book of Writer of Hebrews says. I think it requires a kind of shedding of blood. And I think that discipline is happening. I'm not trying to say God's punishing or anything like that. I'm just saying that naturally the church is going to experience this season as a kind of discipline, as a kind of correction or reckoning, making things right. So initially there's going to be some resistance and sabotage and denial and avoidance of what's happening and uh, what's confronting them. Uh, one of the functions of the pandemic is the forcing effect. And so we're being forced to deal with this pattern that exists in living things. But I think that in our second breath, we're going to realize slowly but surely that we actually don't want to go back to the way things were. And we would not mind if A improved and B got a little better and C was done a little differently. And I think there are these conversations that are emerging in this sort of latter eighth inning of the pandemic or wherever we're at. And so I think that our hearts are getting softer and our eyes are being opened. And there's an increased self-awareness of where the church has been and what the church has been. And so I think pretty soon we're going to see that the fire was a gift. And though none of us would have chosen it, it's going to be a much appreciated correction. Mm. What would you say to Christians and leaders who, you know, want to go back to before the wildfire. They want to go back before the cultural convulsions before and during COVID. What would you say to them? And what would you say to people who want to experience super bloom? Those are two questions, right? What would I say to people who want to go back and people who want to experience super bloom? I'll address the second group first. I would humbly put myself in that group. I've been a church planter. I planted six different churches and I've helped direct church planting, seen the planting of hundreds of churches. And I would say that I think what was driving me to plant my own churches and to stay in that business, even after burnout that resulted from planting churches, is because I was always looking for the post-fire church. I think I've been on my own journey looking for a church that I could call home. As I shared in the beginning, I'm looking for a home. I'm looking for a cultural home. I want to look up and see people that I can relate to and love and be loved by and journey with. And so I think just keep walking. Don't give up. Don't leave. Stay on the ship. It's not sinking. This is not the Titanic. So I would say that to that group. The passage that comes to mind is the oil in the lamp story. Keep the oil in the lamp. Keep the light burning. It's something good's happening. For the group that 
is struggling with this change being forced on them, I may start with uh, loss aversion and what that is. It's not that they don't want what's better or even what's new or different. It's that they're pretty attached to what they've had and what they've known. And they have an aversion to losing that. And so I think it's been helpful to kind of soberly and maybe exhaustively look at what stands to be lost. And is that something that they actually value? Would If they were to rebuild a church from scratch, would they rebuild those same things? And I would say most people, after I engage them in this conversation, and I've done a lot of this, George, per my job in the denomination, they don't want the thing. They thought they wanted the thing. They're just afraid of losing the thing. But they do want, at least in theory, what God has for them. And the real question is, what does God have for them? They're not sure. They feel like this slope is too fast. It's scary. And they're not sure they want this other thing either. But talking to them, not about A or B, but about C, about this third thing, about a third way, about a God thing, about something that's beyond what they imagined or dared even to ask. I think that conversation really gets us into a good place. Because I think if, let's say, they're on the left, they fear the right. If they're on the right, they fear the left. And my question is, oh, what made you think if it wasn't going to be this thing, it was going to be that other thing? Who told you that? Did God tell you that? What's going on for you? Like, what, what are you reading? What are you watching? Who are you talking with? Because I think something brand new is happening. And the Bible promises something beyond what we could ask or imagine. So let's talk about that. And then it becomes a much better conversation. Peter, I want to thank you for coming onto the podcast. It's been a joy talking with you. Thanks, George. Gosh, I wish I interacted with you a little bit more, but uh, you ask good questions. And I got this thing that's just seeping out of every seam in my um, body here. So apologies if that was too much uh, wall of text for people. But um, yeah, there, there it is. Man, I think people are going to enjoy this conversation and really enjoy the heart and the research behind it. And the way you're painting a third way forward, I think, is is going to be very hopeful. So if you're listening, join in on the conversation and and just know that that there's other people who are seeing the trouble that you might see. And are, they're also seeing hope that maybe you haven't seen yet. And so, Peter, thanks for thanks for being that voice for us today. So appreciate it. and can't wait to get a copy of that book in my hands and read it. It's going to be awesome. We'll let our listeners know when it comes out, so when they can get it. And thanks, George, for being a practitioner. I appreciate you being on the ground, living life with real people and not just being a theorist like me. But I've paid my dues, so it's your turn. <laughs> well, thanks, my friend. God bless. Bye. You've been listening to Common Grace, a Garden City podcast. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, please email us at info at gardencitynw.com. If you want to support the podcast, please rate and review it or share it with your friends. And if you'd like to contribute to what Garden City is doing with this podcast, you can give at gardencitynw.com slash give. Thanks for listening.